Well, it helps to have friends in high places, doesn't it? So if you want a place on the team, it's good to be friends with the coach. If you're applying for a job, it doesn't hurt to know the CEO. If you need to cut through some red tape, then it's great to have a buddy in City Hall. If you ever need to call the police, then you probably hope they send Joshua Lauder. You know, it just helps, doesn't it, to just know someone with a bit of clout. Because we all need help, don't we, in times, uh, from time to time. Well, if you're a Christian, then I've got good news for you this morning. Because you have a friend in a high place. A very high place. You know someone who has clout in heaven. Therefore, in times of need, in any situation, you have someone who can help. Who am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Over the past few months, Seth and I have been preaching a topical sermon series called Knowing Christ. We've been considering what the Bible says about who Jesus is to his people. So we've thought about what it means that Jesus is our friend, our brother, our king, our shepherd, our bread, our prophet, and our bridegroom. And this morning, we're going to think about what it means that Jesus is our priest. And we're going to see that because Jesus is our priest, we have a friend in the very throne room of heaven. So I've got two points this morning. First, we're going to think about Christ's sacrifice, and then we're going to think about Christ's intercession. So let's begin with our first point, Christ's sacrifice. Who would you say has the most important job in Northern Virginia? Doctors, police officers, teachers, lawyers, probably Amazon delivery drivers, if we're being honest. What would we do without them? Well, in ancient Israel, the most important job belonged to the priest. You see, the priest was a central figure. He represented a sinful people before a holy God. And the most important role in the priesthood was that of the high priest. You see, there was a day on the, on the Hebrew calendar, it was the most important day really, called the Day of Atonement. And on this day, the high priest would offer sacrifices. First, he needed to make a sacrifice for his own sins. He would then offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. The sacrifices themselves had to be animals without any sort of defect or blemish. They were to be spotless and pure. And the idea was simple, really. The innocent animal would would take the place of guilty sinners. The animal was a substitute. It took the punishment that the people deserved, which was death. And so the high priest was crucial to the life and spiritual welfare of the people. Without him and his work, atonement for sin could not be made. And this wasn't a job that, that anyone could apply for. So, you know, you couldn't email your resume into the temple or, or ask your Uncle Jimmy to put in a good word for you. The high priest was chosen by God himself. And he was chosen from amongst the people of God. He had to be one of them. And, and this makes sense, doesn't it? After all, in order to represent them, he had to be able to identify with them. 
to know what it was like to walk in their shoes, to experience their sorrows, to face their temptations. However, this, this Old Testament priesthood had many problems. There were problems with the priests. Two problems, really. First, the priests were fallen. They were sinful. Like the people, they themselves were not qualified to enter the presence of God. The high priest, whose role it was to make atonement, he himself needed atonement. The second problem with the priests was this. They were finite. They all died. And so their ministry was temporary. But the priests weren't the only problem with this system. There were problems with the sacrifice. Every year, the high priest made sacrifices for the sins of the people. But the sacrifices he made were insufficient. You see, the blood and goats, the blood of bulls and goats wasn't enough. An animal, no matter how spotless and innocent, was never a worthy substitute for the sins of human beings. And so countless sacrifices were made year after year, but it was never enough. In fact, the constant sacrificing, rather than ease people's conscience, Consciences was a continual reminder of how sinful they were. So listen to how the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciences of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The high priest was fallen and finite. The, the atonement sacrifice was insufficient. And so why on earth did God create this system? Here's why. God was preparing his people for something better. The Old Testament anticipates the coming of a true and better high priest, one who is not fallen, one who is not finite, one who is able to offer a better sacrifice. And that person is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So like the Old Testament priests, Christ was chosen by God the Father. But unlike the Old Testament priests, Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. Therefore, he didn't need to offer a sacrifice for his own transgressions. So listen to the author of Hebrews again. Hebrews chapter 7. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, the Old Testament high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus is not only a perfect priest, he's also a permanent priest. In other words, his ministry is not temporary. He never retires from the job. He never makes 401k contributions. Even death cannot keep him from off, uh, remove him from office. Again, listen to the author of Hebrews. 
The former priests were many in number. Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that's Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Finally, unlike the Old Testament priests, Jesus offers a sufficient sacrifice. And that sacrifice is himself. Animals could never pay the price for human sin. Yes, the punishment for sin is death. Therefore, blood needs to be shed. But the blood needs to be far more precious than animal blood. And there is no more blood, no more precious blood than the blood of Jesus Christ. After all, Jesus is God. He's the creator and redeemer. He's the, he's the sustainer of the universe. He is eternal, divine, peerless, glorious. If there's to be a sacrifice to pay for humanity's sin, that sacrifice has to be of infinite value and worth. And nothing but the blood of Jesus is sufficient. Because Jesus is God, he alone can bear the weight of man's sin. But Jesus' divine credentials are not enough. You see, we also need a human being, someone like you and me who can stand in our place. We need a substitute who truly represents us. Only man can pay for man's sin. And that's why Jesus, the Son of God, took on human flesh. He became a man so that he could die in man's place. Jesus lived a perfect life of complete obedience. He earned the right to eternal life. However, he willingly gave himself up as a sacrifice. He took the punishment that we deserved. And so as the God-man, Jesus provided the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. There are no more sacrifices needed. There's no more blood to be shed, no more punishment to inflict. Listen to these passages from God's word. And as I read, just notice the finality of Christ's sacrifice. Hebrews 7. Jesus has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins, and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9, 12. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Later on in that passage, in that, uh, in that chapter, Hebrews 9, 25 to 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And finally, Hebrews 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, 
he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The author of Hebrews is clear, isn't he? Jesus offered a once-for-all sacrifice. His single death was sufficient to pay for every sin. Atonement was fully achieved by this one sacrifice. The great Dutch theologian Gerhardus Voss puts it like this. He says, Christ is the true, only, eternal, kingly, self-sacrificing, atoning toward God, substituting and actually guilt-removing high priest. Here's what this means practically. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need a high priest. You need someone who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners to stand in the presence of God on your behalf. And you need him to make a sacrifice to atone for your sin. Your good deeds are not enough. Your religious resume is not sufficient. No amount of church attendance or Bible reading or sincere prayers can deal with your sin. No amount of neighbor love or community service or social activism can atone for your sin. No amount of self-improvement or moral transformation or theological knowledge can pay for your sin. You might not be the person you used to be. You might not be as bad as some people. You might even be the kindest person on the planet. But it's not enough. Because the wages of sin is death. You need a priest who can offer a sacrifice on your behalf. You need a substitute who can stand in your place. Friend, you need Jesus. Only he has the credentials to be your high priest. Only his death can atone for your sins once and for all. And so if you want forgiveness this morning, if you want to be saved from your sins, then you need Jesus to be your priest. And here's the good news. You can have him. He's yours if you want him. And the way you take him is by receiving him by faith, by trusting that he alone can save you, by believing that his sacrifice is sufficient to pay for all your sin. You can rest your soul in his atoning work. And that makes him your high priest. So if you've never done that, then please, I invite you to do that this morning. And if you are a Christian this morning, then let me remind you, your sins have been atoned for. The justice of God has been satisfied. The wrath of God has been assuaged. The forgiveness of God has been granted. The acceptance of God has been secured. That means if you're in Christ, God is no longer angry at you for your sin. He's not looking down on you with, with a frown on his face. He, he's not frustrated by your failures. He's not irritated by your mistakes. He's not perpetually disappointed by your slow progress. It means the difficulties in your life are not God punishing you for your sin. Your sins have already been punished once for all on the cross. You know, we really struggle to believe this, don't we? The glorious truth that Christ's death has atoned for our sins, it just goes against the natural inclination of our hearts. Because our default mode is to think, I must atone for my sin. I must make up for the wrong that I've done. I must make amends if I want God to accept me. 
Now, there are, there are many ways we do this. Even as Christians, we can find ourselves trying to atone for our sin. So let me give you a personal example. You know, there are times in my life when I've fallen into sin. And instead of going to God for forgiveness, trusting that Christ's death is sufficient to pay for my sin, do you know what, how I've responded? I've, re- I've responded by trying to be extra obedient. I've tried to deal with my sin by making it up to God. So maybe that week, I read my Bible more faithfully, or I prayed more passionately, or I served at church more sacrificially, or I shared the gospel more intentionally. In other words, I've tried to soothe my conscience with good works instead of Christ's blood. But this only ever leads to pride and despair, doesn't it? So if I keep up the obedience, I inevitably become prideful, self-righteous. I end up looking down on others, usually you guys, as a way to justify myself. But then when I fall into sin again, which usually isn't long thereafter, I despair. I think God doesn't love me anymore, that he's against me. In other words, my attempts at atoning for my sin never work. Maybe you can relate. Sometimes we doubt that atonement is even possible, don't we? So when we fall into sin, rather than trying to make it up to God, we just hide from him. So we don't read his word. We don't pray. We don't come to church. We don't take the Lord's Supper. We cut ourselves off from the means of grace because we haven't been a good enough Christian? Why do we do this? Well, it's because deep down, we don't believe that we have a great high priest, someone who has offered a once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. Brothers and sisters, there is no more atonement to be made. It is finished. Salvation has been accomplished at the cross of Christ. But a question arises at this point. How is this salvation applied to the lives of individual people? In other words, if Christ accomplished salvation on the cross 2,000 years ago, how is his atoning work applied to your life today and my life? Well, this brings us to our second point this morning, Christ's intercession. You see, Jesus' work as high priest did not end at the cross. To help us understand this, let's think about the Old Testament again. So in the Old Testament, the high priest, he had one chief responsibility. He was to make atonement for the sins of the people. And that involved two things. The first thing we've already considered, he had to offer an atoning sacrifice. That was how atonement was accomplished. However, and this is really important, after offering the sacrifice... The high priest wasn't done. You know, he couldn't just sit down, have a cup of tea, and do some Sudoku. No, he had, to, he had another critically important job to do. You see, although atonement was accomplished by the sacrifice, it still needed to be applied to the people. 
for the application of atonement to happen, the high priest, he had to enter the Holy of Holies. He had to step into the very presence of God. And he would present the blood of the sacrifice. He would sprinkle it on the altar, basically. And on the basis of that sacrifice, the priest would then intercede for the people, pleading with God to forgive them for their sin. Only then could full atonement be made. In other words, the high priest did two things, sacrifice and atonement, uh, sorry, sacrifice and intercession. The sacrifice accomplished the atonement, the intercession applied the atonement. Now, just let's pause a second. What exactly is intercession? Well, to intercede means to plead on behalf of another. So let me give you an imperfect example. So I remember when I was younger, my little brother did something very naughty. And my mum, I mean, she, she was as angry as I've ever seen a human being. And I thought, oh no, this is the last time I'm gonna see my brother. I'm not even joking, I thought he was a goner. And in this rare, I need to emphasize this, rare display of brotherly love, I stepped in between them and I pleaded with my mum to forgive him. I don't think this has ever happened in the history of, of, of siblings, but I, I stepped in between and I pleaded with mum, like, mum, please just, just forgive him. I even offered to take the rap for what he had done. He was totally out of character for me. But that was, that's an example of intercession. I stood in between my mum and my brother and I pleaded with my mum, please just forgive him. That's basically what the high priest did. He stood between God and the people and he would plead or intercede on their behalf. And he would say, on the basis of that atoning sacrifice, forgive these people for their sin. And do you know what God did? He answered the prayer. He bestowed forgiveness. He canceled their guilt. Through the intercession of the high priest, atonement was applied. That was the Old Testament. And all this pointed forward to Jesus Christ, the true and better high priest. On the cross, Jesus atoned for the sins of the people. Salvation was accomplished. However, our great high priest still had work to do. Work that continues today. He had to rise from the dead. He had to ascend to heaven. And he had to intercede for us at the right hand of God. Only then could his salvation be applied. Listen to the author of Hebrews. Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he, that's Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Just notice what this verse says. Jesus is able to save those who draw near to God through him. You know, he doesn't merely help us. He saves us. And he saves us to the uttermost. His salvation is comprehensive, complete, exhaustive. There's absolutely no need for us to contribute. Nothing more for us to to do or add or earn. He's the savior. He does it all. 
But how is Jesus able to save his people according to this verse? He's able to do it since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, the reason Jesus can save us is because he's not still dead. He lives. He always lives. And specifically, he lives to make intercession for us. Day and night, he stands in the throne room of God on our behalf. And what's he doing? He's pleading for us, advocating for us, praying for us. He's applying the salvation that he accomplished at the cross. We get a preview of this in John 17. Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's, he's interceding for them as their high priest. And look what he says in John 17, verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, for, for these disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. For those who will believe in Jesus through the disciples' word. That's us today. You know, it's not enough for Jesus to simply die for us. He has to pray for us, intercede for us. He has to apply the work that his death accomplished. And that's what the author of Hebrews says Jesus is doing continually. Let me just put this in simple terms. If you're a Christian this morning, it's because Jesus has mentioned your name in heaven. Think about that. Your great high priest has prayed for you. There you were, dead in your sins. You had no desire to please God or glorify him. Your moment-by-moment -moment existence, your thoughts, words, deeds, were defined by a rejection of God. Not only were you enslaved by sin, but you coddled sin, you cherished sin, you treasured sin. Your heart was perpetually enthroning self, committing treason against the king of the universe. And this is true of all of us, by the way, whether you grew up in a Christian home or not, keeping the rules or breaking the rules, a good kid or a bad kid, whether your life was squeaky clean or shamefully depraved, all of us, we're dead in our sin, children of wrath without hope. And then, Jesus, your great high priest, mentioned you in heaven. He prayed, Father, forgive Mike for the sake of my blood. Father, forgive Carlos for the sake of my blood. Father, forgive Esther for the sake of my blood. Father, forgive Jen for the sake of my blood. Give them a new heart, a heart of flesh, not of stone. Give them the Holy Spirit. Give them faith to believe. Do you know if you're a Christian this morning, it's because you have a great high priest in heaven who mentioned your name before the Father. And you know, Jesus didn't just mention you once and, you know, and then just kind of cross you off his prayer list. No, he prays for you continually. Do you know that? You know, this should make a massive difference in our day-to-day -day lives. 
This is huge practical significance. Let me suggest two practical implications of this. The first one is when we sin, Jesus intercedes for us. When we sin, Jesus intercedes for us. So the Apostle John wrote this to the church in 1 John chapter 2. He said, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Greek word for advocate there can also be translated intercessor. It refers to someone who appears in a courtroom on someone else's behalf. When we sin, we have an advocate in the heavenly courtroom. And who is he? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Notice that John calls him the propitiation for our sins. Through his death, Jesus has propitiated or he's appeased the wrath of God. He's accomplished atonement. We've been seeing that. That's what Jesus did. But what's he doing now? John says he's advocating for us, interceding for us, pleading the merits of his righteous blood. When we sin, it's as if Jesus is continually hitting the refresh button on our forgiveness. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans 8, in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Do you ever feel crushed by guilt? Do you ever feel condemned in your sin? Are there, are there small pockets of your life, dark crevices of your soul, where you think, I'm not sure God's forgiveness extends that far? You know, maybe it's something you did in the past. Maybe it's a besetting sin. You know, you, you've come to God for forgiveness. You've, you've sincerely tried to repent, yet the guilt remains. The, the voices of, of accusation just echo around in your head and you're tempted to despair. It, you know that Jesus died for people's sin. However, how do you know that he died for your sin? You know that atonement was accomplished. However, how do you know that atonement has been applied? How, has God really forgiven you? Has he really pardoned all your sins, past, present, and future? Look what Paul says. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Answer, no one. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Answer, no one. Christ Jesus has died. He has been sacrificed. He's atoned for our sin. But then Paul says, but more than that, more than the death of Christ, yes, more than the death of Christ, Jesus didn't stay dead. He was raised. And what is he doing? He is at the right hand of God interceding for us, pleading the merits of his blood. We might not be righteous, but we have a great high priest who is. Do 
He is our righteousness. That means our righteousness is in heaven where it really counts. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why we sing the words of those of that great hymn. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Now listen, we can easily make a big mistake here. And that mistake is this. The mistake is to picture Jesus prostrate before a reluctant father. You know, we can imagine that God the Father is standing there with, with his arms folded and a, and a frown on his face. And the only reason that he forgives us is because Jesus is kind of twisting his arm. That's not what's happening here. The Father himself loves us. He sent his one and only Son to save us. He gave what was most precious to him so that people like us could be brought into his family. The Father delights to show mercy. He's the Father of mercies. He loves nothing more than, than showering sinners with grace and kindness. So picture this instead. Imagine that you fall into sin. You give in to lust, resentment, fear, grumbling, greed, deceit, pride, whatever it is. You know, left to yourself, you would stand guilty, condemned. However, in that moment, you have a great high priest representing you in heaven, interceding for you. And he says, Father, forgive them for the sake of my blood. And then the Father delights to hear that prayer. Moments like this are exactly why he sent his son into the world. This is what Jesus is doing for you every time you sin. Even when you neglect to pray, Jesus is praying for you. And in this way, the atoning work of Christ is daily applied moment by moment in the lives of God's people. Isn't this just so comforting? Like, think about how personal this makes our salvation. Jesus didn't just die for us 2,000 years ago, accomplish salvation, and then leave us to our own devices. That would, just, that would make salvation kind of transactional. You know, Jesus paid the price, he got us off the hook, and now he's not really involved in our lives. No, salvation is, is dynamic and personal and relational. Picture Jesus, risen and exalted, above the angels, clothed in glory and splendor. Picture this Jesus, earnestly praying for you, day and night, amidst all your sins and failures. I mean, how can we not be moved by such compassionate love? How can we not be comforted by such intimate tenderness? How can we not be overjoyed by such constant devotion? When we sin, Jesus intercedes for us. Secondly, when we're tempted, Jesus intercedes for us. 
Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The author of Hebrews, he, he exhorts us to hold fast our confession. What does that mean? It means to persevere in the Christian life. Or as Journey would say, don't stop believing. Uh, why does he exhort us to do this? Well, it's because it's hard, isn't it? I mean, there are just so many temptations to give up as a Christian. Sin tempts us to give up. Suffering tempts us to give up. In the face of temptation, how can we persevere? I mean, we're just so weak, aren't we? Well, look what these verses say. We can keep going because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. We have a friend in high places. Someone with clout in heaven. And this friend knows exactly how hard your life is. Look at verse 15. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. The word sympathize there has the sense of co-suffering. In our pain, in our trials, in our temptations, there's a mysterious sense in which Jesus himself suffers with us. He's not looking down on us with detached pity, nor is he apathetic or harsh towards us. That's because he's walked in our shoes. He's experienced life in a fallen world. He himself has been tempted in every respect as we are. When life is hard, we want someone who can sympathize with us, don't we? Who knows what it's like, who's faced the same trials and temptations. And that's what we have in Jesus. We have a high priest who is like us in every respect. With one important difference, the author of Hebrews tells us, he was without sin. He never gave in to the temptations that we face. And that means two things. Firstly, Jesus knows the full force of temptation even more than we do. You know, we sometimes give in to temptation before it gets too bad, don't we? When the temptation to, to give up because of sin comes on us, we often give up before that temptation gets too intense. When a temptation to, to give up because of suffering comes upon us, we often give up because the, the suffering is so intense. Jesus experienced temptation in all its fullness. Yet he never gave up. And secondly, because Jesus never gave in, he alone can help us. That's why the author of Hebrews exhorts us again in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In all our temptations, Jesus offers help. In all our weaknesses, he pities us. 
In all our suffering, he grants mercy. In all our sins, he gives grace. And so we should come to him with confidence. We should draw near to him with boldness. It doesn't matter how complicated or desperate or hopeless your life has become. It doesn't matter how overwhelmed you are by sin and suffering. Jesus knows that you need him and you need him now. And he delights to help you. He's interceding for you, praying that your faith will not fail. And it's through his prayers that God provides strength, comfort, and relief. Friends, this is the kind of high priest we have in our trials and temptations. This is the sympathetic savior we have in our sins and suffering. One theologian coined the, coined the phrase omnipotent compassion. Jesus combines infinite power with boundless pity. What trials and temptations are you currently facing? At work, at home, at school? Are you anxious, depressed, lonely? Have you been experiencing financial hardship, relational conflict, health issues? Are you going through a tough season of, of marriage, of singleness, of parenthood? Are you struggling with doubts? Do you feel weighed down by guilt and shame? Are you stuck in a besetting sin? A sin that you want to put to death, yet you just keep falling into? Is there a particular area of your life where temptation is constant and discouraging? What difference would it make to know that Christ is praying for you right now? That in the moments of temptation, you have a sympathetic high priest who is interceding for you in heaven. That in the very moment you fall into sin, you have a righteous advocate pleading the merits of his blood on your behalf. You know, I find it so comforting to know that when I neglect to pray, Jesus doesn't neglect to pray for me. He ever lives above for me to intercede, his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. In all our trials and temptations, all our sins and sufferings, we have a great high priest who always lives to make intercession for us. The late Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McChain, once said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. What a savior we have. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you are our great high priest, that you offered up a perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins a sacrifice not of the blood of bulls and goats, but of your own blood. We thank you that you, your work for us didn't finish at the cross, but you rose from the dead in victory, that you ascended to heaven, and that you stand at the right hand of God, interceding for us, pleading the merits of your righteous blood. We thank you that even when we sin, you're interceding for us. 
that in all our trials and temptations, in all our sin and suffering, we have a sympathetic high priest. And so we praise you this morning, Lord Jesus, and we pray that you would engrave these truths on our hearts and that we would live in light of them with joy and peace and comfort. Amen.